turn in your Bibles, in whatever format you have it, to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 19. So for about eight or nine months now, we've been working our way through this book of Revelation slowly and surely, kind of taking it chapter by chapter. So we come to Revelation 19. And let me remind you that as, as we've been going through this, I'm taking bigger chunks. I'm going to try to preach the whole chapter of chapter 19. And I realize that it will, for some, it will leave a lot of questions and a lot of things wanting. But I'm trying to give an overview. I'm trying to hold the, the panoramic picture that John paints together um, rather than just um, bore you to tears by breaking it down too far. I'd rather that you we finish the book before Christ returns rather than uh, delay it until <laughs> after his return. So Revelation 19, hear the word of the Lord this morning. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Just a bit of light reading for this morning. (laughs) Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. 
Heavenly Father, this is a big, weighty passage, uh, bigger than we can digest even in one setting. And yet, Lord, uh, we need your help. Or would you, by your spirit, enable us to understand your word? Would you, by your spirit, enable this word to grow roots in our heart, to bear fruit in our lives? And would you, by your spirit, shine a spotlight on the King of kings and Lord of lords, our dear Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When you think of a grand and joyous celebration, what pictures or events or situations come to your mind? Perhaps you think maybe of the coronation and celebration of a king. So just recently last month, 30 million people tuned in to watch the coronation service of King Charles. And you saw probably as the king traveled from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey, and he didn't travel in just normal uh, travel car. It was a golden carriage drawn by six of the most beautifully groomed horses. And the streets were lined with people shouting, God save the king. Maybe when you think of a grand celebration, you think of Times Square on New Year's Eve. Usually on TV, you see it filled with hundreds of thousands of people celebrating the turning of the calendar and the beginning of a new year. Or maybe you think of the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games. Thousands of athletes from all over the world march around the uh, the host city stadium, packed to the brim with fans from all over the globe with all the pomp and circumstance and show that's there because they're there to cheer on their countries to victory. Or when I think of a grand and joyous celebration, I think of the victory parade of a sports team that has just won the championship of their respective sport. So anytime that happens, they'll come back to their their home city and fans will line the street. They'll be kind of sitting on these parades. They'll be spraying champagne. You'll probably hear Queens, you know, we are the champions playing in the background. And the reason I think of this is as a Minnesota sports fan, I've always viewed these with envy. I've never been able to see one of these firsthand, so I, I, I just view them with envy. Well, the reason I bring up this question of grand and joyous celebrations and these examples is because the scene that John paints for us in Revelation 19 is that of a grand and joyous celebration on a scale we've never seen before. The celebration that's described in Revelation 19, all the hallelujahs that just kind of roll like waves, like a four-part chorus, is the grand and joyous celebration that believers in Christ will actually get to participate in. And when we get to participate in it, we will realize that all the best earthly celebrations that we've ever seen or experienced or viewed with envy, we're always pointing in a way to this grand and joyous celebration. And yet we're wholly inadequate to ever prepare us for something like this. John describes a heavenly city filled to the full with people who are overflowing with joyous songs because they are filled with love for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who has been revealed. And all of this mixes together to produce a celebration of incomparable grandness and joyousness. And it's a future one. Mark my word, John takes us in Revelation 19 ahead to the future to give us a preview to whet our appetites and to fill us with anticipation for this grand and joyous celebration so that we would wait for it with hope. Remember, he's writing from a island where he has been set apart as a political prisoner. He's sectioned off from everyone else and the people he's writing to have been dealing with persecution and oppression from a government that opposes Christ and his gospel. 
they are the people who are furthest from ever participating firsthand in a victory celebration, in a joyous and grand celebration. And yet John, to inject hope and encouragement into their hearts, gives them a preview, takes them forward to the day when they will get to stand with Christ in glory and celebrate with him. So this scene, this grand and joyous future celebration is given to us so that we might patiently wait for that day with hopeful anticipation when we get to participate in this. So in John's description, in the celebration of heaven scene, John kind of mixes and mingles together three different celebration metaphors to kind of paint this panoramic perspective of the joy and grandeur of the celebration of heaven. So the first metaphor, which is in verses one to five, is that of a victory celebration. So John uses kind of military language of a victor coming home to his people and they celebrate the fact that he is the one who's conquered. He is the champion. So what John is showing us is that the celebration of heaven will be grand and joyous because we will be celebrating Christ's final decisive judgment on evil. That's why heaven is celebrating. So in Revelation, John has used three symbolic figures to kind of present to us kind of this unholy trinity. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. But then you have the great prostitute, the beast, and the false prophet, the unholy trinity. And so each of these representative figures uh, presents to us one of the struggles that God's people are going to have to face in the time between the times, in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So the great prostitute is this seductive woman who represents all the allure and temptation of a fallen, sinful world that has twisted and distorted what God has made good. Then you have the beast, which represents this powerful political leader who himself represents all the persecution and the threat of persecution that comes from leaders and governments that oppose Christ and his gospel. So for them, at this time, it would have been Rome. That's, that's who they thought of. They thought of Nero and Vespasian and Domitian, all these uh, leaders of the Roman kind of military political complex that was opposing Christ and his gospel. But then you have not only the prostitute and the beast, but you have the false prophet. And the false prophet is this religious figure who represents the corrupting influence of false teaching and false religion, which poisons the truth with distortions and lies and, and all sorts of different ungodly religious propaganda. So with these, this unholy trinity, John is saying, Christians, the three things you're going to most often face in the fallen world that is going to compete with your patience, your endurance, your faithfulness to Christ is the seduction of a fallen world, the persecution of those in power who oppose Christ, and the corruption of false teaching and false religion. Well, in Revelation 19, John transports us to the day that each one of these representative figures is decisively dealt with forever by Christ. So look at verse one and two with me. So right there in, in the lyrics, right where it says, crying out, it says, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, which is important because Rome had been claiming that for themselves and saying that no, salvation, glory and power belongs to us. Why? Verse two, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the heavenly choir is singing because Christ has decisively judged and put an end to the reign of misworldliness, who is always seducing and influencing and drawing people away from faithfulness to Christ. And this is meant to fill us with hope because it will mean that one day we will no longer have to resist temptation. 
One day, we will no longer have to confess our struggle and inability to resist temptation. One day, we will no longer have to endure a society that pridefully flaunts all of its denials and distortions of God's law and asks us to join in on those prideful celebrations. One day, all of our desires will be rightly ordered and we will live in a world which will only serve to promote God-honoring, God-glorifying desires because Christ will put an end to the seductive influence of this fallen world. And so John presents this to say, continue to patiently endure, continue to present yourself faithfully to Christ in purity and holiness. Well, if you jump to the end of our passage, you'll notice that John describes the decisive defeat of the two remaining members of the unholy trinity. So verse 17 and 18, yeah, John begins to employ what has been called prophetic mockery and taunting. So kids, when you think of playing a sport and you're, you want to let the other team know that they have something coming, you, know, you tell them, you know, we're going to eat you for dinner or breakfast or whatever meal is uh, most appropriate. Well, that's what John does to all those who would oppose Christ. Listen to this, verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And he says, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave, both small and great. So what this angel is doing here is he's, he's taunting all the armies that have gathered against Christ. And he's saying, this is going to be such a quick, such a smooth battle that, you know, I just want to let the birds know that they are going to feast tonight. They are going to get to eat. And the irony here is that Rome was known for their military conquest. They were known for Alexander the Great. They were known for going in and conquering. And what does a conqueror do after he's conquered? They sit down for a meal. Well, God is saying to all those who would unrepentantly rebel against him and oppose him, you're not gonna get to eat a meal of victory. In fact, you're going to be the victory meal when I come to decisively bring in my eternal kingdom. This is some holy prophetic taunting and mockery. Well, then look at verse 19 and 20. The battle is, is very short. In fact, it's, it's less than a verse. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And here's the battle. And the beast was captured. That's it. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So the army that joins Christ is not there to fire. They're, they're just there to watch. We will only be spectators in watching Christ's decisive defeat of evil and the ushering in of his eternal kingdom. It's like the Exodus imagery where the nation of Israel is there standing with water in front of them and the Egyptian army behind them. And what does Moses say to them? Just watch. Just stand here and watch what the Lord is going to do today. And they stand and watch as the Lord himself, the mighty warrior, defeats the enemy. And they get to just enter into that celebration. So when Christ judges the beast, the blood of every martyr who died for their faith in Christ, the blood of every martyr who cried out in heaven, how long, O Lord, will be perfectly avenged. Every political, every societal threat to the life of a Christian and to the cause of the gospel will vanish in an instant. And this is meant to give Christians hope, especially Christians like John's audience and our brothers and sisters around the globe who are in places where they do not have the freedoms that we do. Because one day, no Christian will ever have to worry about what following Jesus means for their life and livelihood. One day, 
Christians will never be put in a position where they will have to wrestle with obeying God versus disobeying the government because those two things will be in perfect unity and harmony. When the eternal kingdom of God, when the Prince of Peace will forever establish his kingdom and forever eliminate all contenders and rebels. And then when Christ judges the false prophet, the truth of his word will finally be publicly fully vindicated and all corrupting lies and distortions will be exposed for what they are. And this is meant to encourage us because we live in a world and we often have to endure times where the truth of God's word as a whole or parts of it are not gonna win any public opinion polls. And this often is a temptation to, what do I do? Do do I fear man and wanna fit in with them or do I hold to God's word and stand against what is popular? One day, we who stand for the truth of God's word will never have to worry about defending the truth. We will never have to worry about how it's going to be perceived and received by society. One day, we will never struggle with any doubts about what is the truth. One day, we will never have to struggle watching others be drawn away from the truth because God's word will be vindicated. The sword from his mouth, the word of God will come and decisively defeat all his enemies. Now, one of the practical effects of understanding this character of Christ, his his justice and his perfect demonstration of his justice at the final judgment is that it frees us, one, from our struggle with wondering, is injustice just going to continue on? Is God going to do something about it? The answer is decisively yes, but it also protects us from that struggle we often get when we're wronged, that I need to get even. I need to take matters into my own hands. Right? Whenever you feel like you're wronged or slighted or someone's harmed you, sometimes we think that we have become one of the members of the Avengers superhero team, right? And it's up to us to give people what they have coming to them, right? We need to put people in their place. And yet, this is the Christian ethic that Paul gives us in Romans 12, verse 19. It says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Not because God is against vengeance and justice, but because this, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The reason you can resist evil and endure evil and be patient in evil and even return good for evil is because in God's hands, justice will be perfectly executed one day. Justice will not miscarry in his hands. There there are oftentimes where people in this world, they're they're longing for justice and they they feel like they, they never get it. And yet, why is it that we have this thing inside us that that longs for justice to be done? It's because we were made in the image of a God who is perfectly, righteously just. And because there is an answer to that echo in our hearts for justice, God will bring justice to bear. Therefore, we do not need to avenge ourselves. We can return good for evil because God will set things right. Well, as we move on our passage, we move from the metaphor of a kind of military victory celebration to that of a wedding and wedding supper celebration. So what John says now in verses uh, six through 10 is that the celebration of heaven will be so joyous and grand because we will get to sit at the table of the marriage supper of the lamb. So you can see there in verse seven, it mentions marriage imagery for the marriage of the lamb has come. And then verse nine, it mentions marriage imagery. Again, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this reference 
has meant to remind us that one of the great themes of the Bible is that of a marriage. The Bible starts with a marriage and it ends with the marriage, the ultimate eternal marriage. It starts with God bringing Eve to Adam. He said, this at last is bone my bone and flesh of my flesh. And it ends with Christ coming for his bride who he makes her pure and beautiful. And in the middle, it's all about the cross, the cross, which is that dowry payment for that marriage to happen at the end. And this theme of marriage is meant to remind us that every marriage we see, every wedding that we even participate in, when conducted and celebrated rightly, is a foretaste and a picture of heaven. Just about one year ago, I had one of my great privileges as a pastor is I got to officiate my first wedding. And it was the wedding for Austin and Rachel. And someone from church asked me after the wedding, you know, well, how'd it go? How was it? And I, without hesitation, said, it was a foretaste of heaven. It was one of the sweetest, most beautiful things I got to experience. And part of it was because I got to see, almost from beginning to end, the, the process of, of you guys meeting and going through the premarital counseling. I mean, they would come to premarital counseling with their homework done. They would ask questions. They would take notes. And anytime you ask them how many days until the wedding, guess what? They didn't have to think. They knew it right off the top of their heads. So there was this anticipation and joy. And I was excited for their excitement. And so we get to the wedding and I got to stay in a little cottage right on the Steenhatchee River for free with my wife, which is, that's like the gospel. You get to come and it's free, beautiful. <laughs> then for the groom's dinner, I got to eat a all-you-can-eat seafood buffet for free, which is like the gospel. It's free. You don't have to pay. <laughs> then after the groom's dinner, I got to sit down with Rachel's dad, Wes, who you know here, and I got to watch Wes cry five different times as he talked about how much he loved his daughter and how excited he was for her. And it was a beautiful thing. And then at the wedding ceremony, I got to stand right in front and I got to watch Austin's eyes as the door opened and he looked at Rachel's eyes and I got to watch Rachel's eyes look at Austin's eyes and I got the best seat in the house. It was beautiful. Then I got to preach the gospel, which I love to do. Then afterwards, I got another free meal, which was great. (laughs) And there was fellowship, there was conversation, there was laughter. It was one of those things where you, you hate it because it has to end at some point. You, you don't want it to end. And, and I just remember for weeks after, just kind of relishing that taste in my mouth, thinking, if heaven is anything like this, I cannot wait. And that's exactly what I think made that wedding so sweet, is because more than all the free stuff I got, it was centered on Christ. It was about the gospel of Christ and how he loves his bride and how it was displayed in that ceremony and that celebration. And God designed marriage and weddings to be something like that, So that when we experience them, we would have capacities and categories to understand Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. All other wedding celebrations, all other marriages have only ever, as best as they can, been pointing to this all along. And weddings, when conducted and celebrated properly, are designed by God to awaken in you an anticipation for what John talks about in Revelation 19.9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So in and through the earthly joy of weddings, God is saying, if you think this is good, just wait and see what I have in store for you in the marriage supper that this has been pointing to all along. We can hardly begin to fathom the joy and grandeur of that wedding celebration which is coming because we've never seen anything like it. Never 
has there been a more worthy bridegroom of a wedding. Never has there been a more unworthy bride who has been more loved by a bridegroom, who willingly takes all her debts as if they were his own and shares all his riches as if they were her own. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself to deeper deaths, endured such hardships, and accomplished such victories in trial in the great task of winning a bride to himself. Never has there been such a dowry price paid for a bride. Now, we don't, we don't really talk about dowry prices anymore. At least I, I, didn't, I didn't have to pay one uh, for my wife. I think they were just happy to get rid of her, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> but a dowry price at that time was, you would go to the father of the person you want to marry, and there would be a contract, you know, I need 600 sheep or, or cattle or, or something, whatever the currency was in that day. Never has there been a dowry price paid like this. The reason that this marriage is two times called the marriage of the lamb is to remind us of the costliness of putting on this wedding. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Never has a price been so paid for a wedding, and never has a bride been so beautifully dressed as we see alluded to in verse 8. Look at the garment she wears. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. John is alluding to the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, which says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. That We don't see it now, but if you're in Christ, you, you have this garment, but it's invisible in, in a way because Christ has given you and clothed you with his perfect righteousness. But in heaven, that standing we have will actually become our state, our character. The righteousness of Christ is so powerful, it eternally changes our standing before God and it will eternally change our character in heaven, that we will be what we are, righteous in Christ. And the best part of this wedding celebration is that the invitation is sent out to all. The wedding supper of the Lamb, the invitation for this wedding has been sent out to all. All without distinction are invited to this wedding feast. You know, many people struggle with the, the exclusivity of the gospel. You know, Christ is the only way. Yes, he is, because he's the only one who paves the path to God with his own blood so that we can walk down it pure and blameless and spotless, despite our sins and condemnation. You know, someone has said, um, the whole objection, you know, every, every road leads to God. I think every road leads to God. That is true to a degree. Every road leads to God, but only one road leads to a good encounter with God. And that's the road that Jesus Christ has paved with his own blood. And this invitation to this wedding, to this groom who has laid down his life for his bride, is given to all without distinction. You just need to make sure that you RSVP. And what does RSVPing mean? In this case with the gospel, it means that you acknowledge your need for Christ because of your sin, because you have broken his law, and you acknowledge that Christ alone can meet that need. Christ alone can cancel that condemnation, forgive that sin, remove all your iniquities, that if God should mark them, you could not stand in his presence. Faith alone is the RSVP to this wedding. And if you do not RSVP with faith, then your name is not in the, in the guest booklet. Imagine going to a wedding. There was a story of this professional singer who was invited to this very large and, and grand wedding. And she sang at the, the ceremony. Well, she was coming to the reception and she, it was in that, 
that building in Seattle that has like the sky top or whatever. It's like the big saucer dish. Or, I forget. It's a famous place. Very expensive. Well, she walks up and the person at the door says, you know, your name, please. And she, she gives her name and he's looking, looking, can't find it. And then he said, well, what, you know, what's your first name? Is there any other name? And she said, well, it might be this. Can't find her name. And her husband is with her, says, you know, did you not RSVP? She's like, I didn't think I have to. I, I'm the singer after all. Don't I just get in because I'm the singer? And the person would not let them in. He said, your name has to be in this book if you want to get in this wedding. So I'm sorry. So they had to leave and they could only see it from a distance and they, they didn't get to go. So she realized, you need to RSVP. And it was a picture for her of the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel goes out. But the response is required that we would trust ourselves to Christ because we need him and he is the one alone who can meet our needs. And when we trust in him, our name is written forever in pen in the guest book of life. So RSVP to that wedding. Well, finally, in verses 11 to 16, John describes not just a victory celebration or a wedding celebration, but a coronation celebration. The celebration of heaven will be grand and joyous because we will celebrate the eternal installment of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At a coronation ceremony, which, you know, we have a better government system than a monarchy, so we're not familiar with these. But at a coronation ceremony, like was recently seen with King Charles over in England, a king is formally and publicly crowned before that kingdom and the subjects and is invested with all the authority and power and responsibility that belongs to that throne and that kingdom that they now sit over. And so in a sense, this is the coronation ceremony of the King of Kings 2.0. In one sense, Christ's ascension into heaven was his coronation ceremony 1.0, where he went and took the seat next to his father. And yet we still realize that there exist rivals and those who would oppose Christ. And one day is coming when his kingdom will be fully forever and finally established in the coronation ceremony 2.0. But there's a surprising contrast in this section we're reading. So we have the marriage section where it talks about the lamb two times. And then what we're greeted with in verse 11 is nothing like a lamb. So when you think of a lamb, you think of a gentle and lowly animal. You think of an animal that is the most non-threatening, the most mild and peaceful of animals, the most unintimidating animal you can think of. And yet look how John begins his description of Christ in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. And the description goes on in all this royal regal imagery of a mighty warrior king. Now, a lamb and a mighty warrior king are two things that I would never put together, right? They seem like very incompatible descriptions. So you start to wonder, you know, did John make a mistake? Does he have a lamb confused with some other animal, right? Well, not at all. What John is showing us is that in Christ, there is perfect harmony between the meekness of a lamb and the majesty of a king. In Christ, these two seemingly incompatible things come together in perfect harmony. So in Christ, There is infinite gentleness and tenderness to deal compassionately with all of our sin and shortcomings and failures. And yet, in Christ, there is infinite power and strength to subdue and defeat all his and our enemies. In Christ, there is perfect sacrificial love by which he lays down his life and serves others. And yet, there's also perfect justice by which he will execute judgment and make war 
on all who unrepentantly oppose him. The majestic kingliness of Jesus helps us to not distort his lamb likeness. Sometimes we can, we can take one aspect of Jesus and make it the whole thing and it becomes kind of a distortion. So we have the majestic kingliness of Jesus, which is meant, us to, meant to help us not distort his lamb likeness into thinking that Jesus is just this gentle, senile lamb who approves of everything we do, who never judges anyone, who looks like he's you know, made for a you know, men's hair commercial or something and just wants us to get along with everyone and accept each other. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. That is the Jesus of postmodernism. And yet, the meek lamb, lamb likeness of Jesus helps us to not distort his kingliness into thinking that Jesus is some unapproachable monarch who has no time for peasants like us, or he is an unappeasable ruler who is always disappointed and displeased with his subjects because they're not doing enough for his kingdom. No, in Christ, there is the perfect harmony of the meekness of a lamb who sacrificially loves and the majesty of a king who sovereignly rules. And these two things have never met together in another person other than Jesus Christ. And the other reason that John shows the surprising contrast is to highlight the difference between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So in Christ's first coming, what was highlighted and forefront in Jesus' character was his lamb likeness, that he came in the humility of a lamb to lay down his life for others. There was no publicity. There was no majesty. There was no real royalty on display when Christ came in his first coming. But in his second coming, the majestic, the majestic king likeness of Jesus will be front and center and on full display for all to see. That he, he came first as a lamb and he's coming again as a warrior king, a lion in all his king likeness. And it's interesting, look at verses 11 to 16 and I'm just gonna point out a couple things and show how John's preview of the second coming of Christ stands in contrast to what his first coming was like. So in his first coming, it was shrouded in secrecy. It came with very little recognition or publicity, but his second coming, as described here, will be a massive, undeniable public spectacle beyond any royal coronation service we've ever seen before. In his first coming, he rode into Jerusalem on the back of the most humble of animals, a donkey. That doesn't strike fear into anyone. It's humility. But in his second coming, he rides in on the back of a white horse with an army of people who are riding in on white horses, as verse 11 points out. What's the significance of a white horse? It's the symbol of victory. So when Rome would come back from conquering, they would ride in on white horses to signal to all the people that were seeing them, we were victorious. And Christ is coming on that horse in that symbol of military victory. In Jesus' first coming, he was ridiculed and forced to wear a crown of thorns, a shameful crown that symbolized the fall, sin, the curse. And as it was pressed on his head, blood flowed down from his head. But in his second coming, notice as verse 12 points out, that he will be crowned with many crowns, too many crowns to count, because this will display the infinite honor and authority of Christ that is due to his name, not the shame that he received in his first coming. In his first coming, Christ came to bear judgment so that all our sins could be forgiven and all our guilt could be canceled. On his second coming, he comes not to be judged, but to be the judge of the living and the dead who will restore righteousness and justice and order so that all sin and evil will be forever banished. So he first comes to banish our guilt, Second time he comes to banish evil and sin forever. 
In his first coming, Jesus was mockingly given the title King of the Jews as the soldiers beat him and the crowds derided him. But at his second coming, his true and rightful title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, will be on full display and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it will be a coronation celebration. And all of these celebrations are meant to help us view our present circumstances through the lens of a heavenly and eternal perspective so that we would not be discouraged by our circumstances, but would press on with hopeful anticipation. Because for John's audience and for us at times, we can look with the eyes of sight and and it seems like reality does not line up with what the scripture says. It doesn't seem like Christ is reigning. It doesn't seem like evil is just gonna go away. It seems like it's, it's, it's doing just quite fine. And yet what John shows us is not what we see with our eyes, but we need to see by faith, the heavenly and eternal perspective of what is really real and what is truly true, that we might be encouraged to press on with hopeful anticipation. So we see the future victory celebration over evil and sin and injustice so that we might be encouraged to continue to fight the good fight of faith, that we might continue to be encouraged to fight sin in our own hearts and put sin to death in us and to boldly stand on the truth of God's word, knowing that it will triumph in the end. We see the future celebration of the joyous wedding supper of the Lamb because one day we're gonna get to enter into the fullness of Christ's joy and the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us. And we see this so that we would not be drawn away by the seductive influence of a fallen world that offers false fleeting pleasure, but we would wait for the true king to come and the true joy to be ushered in. And we see the future coronation of the king of kings when he comes to reign without any rival or resistance so that we would seek first his kingdom, so that we would not lose hope, so that we'd store up our treasures in heaven, so that we would know our citizenship in heaven means our allegiance goes to Christ and no one else because no one else is worthy of our allegiance. So let's pray for God to continue to do that work in our hearts and inject it with hopeful anticipation.